This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. We're now 32 days away from the United Kingdom's departure from the European Union, unless that deadline is extended. This week, Prime Minister Theresa May offered Parliament a vote on March 12th on such an option. Leave the EU without a deal or get a limited extension on a departure date. However, French President Emmanuel Macron, appearing at a joint news conference with German Chancellor Angela Merkel today, said Britain needs a good reason for such a delay, saying the withdrawal agreement cannot be renegotiated. In the meantime, the opposition Labour Party made an announcement earlier this week that it would support another referendum vote. So what are we going to expect next? In studio with Brandon O'Leary, political science professor here at the University of Pennsylvania, and on the phone uh, in just a minute with Michelle Egan, who is a professor in the School of International Service at American University, and she is a global fellow at the Wilson Center. Start with Brendan. Good morning, John. Good morning. So what do we expect? Well, we now know we're no longer in Groundhog Day. Uh, we're, we're certainly uh, at the end of the beginning. You say that now. I, uh, I'm confident Okay. Of it. All right. We're at the end of the beginning. Decisions have to be made. Uh, what has occurred uh, that listeners need to know is that Mrs. May has been obliged to make a major retreat because of a revolt within her own cabinet and among her ministers. They required her to go forth and announce that she would uh, allow a vote on no exit occurring without a deal. And she did this because if she hadn't, then today there is a motion in Parliament requiring precisely that. By her decision, it makes it now unlikely that the motion before Parliament today will be passed. That postpones, that kicks the can down the road until March the 12th. Now, what is she gambling on? She's gambling on the supposition that she will successfully persuade the EU that a legal codicil to be drafted by her own Attorney General, Mm -hmm. which will allegedly be binding on the UK, will reverse the Attorney General's advice to the UK Parliament on the meaning of the Irish backstop. That's my (laughs) understanding. Okay. Now, the EU has to agree to that. And that negotiation is taking place, if it is taking place, we we hear conflicting accounts of that. And, of course, Ireland has to agree to it. Right, yeah. Because the EU is incredibly unlikely to push Ireland into a corner at this late stage. So it seems to me that that's still going uh, very badly. But her hope and calculation is if she gets a form of words, that will be sufficient to get the hardliners and the members of the Democratic Unionist Party to vote with her Uh, in favour of the same deal that they rejected by over 200 votes uh, barely a month ago. Now, um, the probability of all that happening seems to me still to be remarkably low, but those are her calculations. And the reason she makes those calculations is that she thinks that the Brexiteers are facing their nightmare, namely that because of the reversal of Labour's position, because there will be a majority in Parliament for uh, having no exit without a deal, that uh, raises the high probability that there will be a referendum. And that referendum will be a choice between May's deal and remaining in the European Union. So the Brexiteers are seeing their favoured solution, a hard exit, 
disappearing off the horizon. And they're coming under a lot of pressure from the British tabloids uh, and the Conservative press to back May's deal. We'll see. Uh, there is now a new name that is popping onto the screen here uh, in this whole process coming out of the Labour Party, Yvette Cooper. Uh, we have obviously talked a lot about Jeremy Corbyn uh, and his leadership of the Labour Party, but it is Yvette Cooper uh, as part of the Labour Party who is really driving this idea of bringing something forth to Parliament today. She is. She's not doing it alone. She's right. a former Labour minister uh, of very senior rank and status. Uh, she's cooperating with Oliver Letwin, um, a, a, a very distinguished conservative backbencher. And their proposal, in effect, would take matters out of the hands of the cabinet and would be unprecedented. It would require parliament to take full control of the negotiating process. And uh, if it were to pass today, that would bring forth the crisis I was anticipating in in, uh, the second week of March. Uh, And it would make it, I think, it would make Mrs May's position untenable if, if Cooper won today. But the pressure of Cooper and others combined with a break in the Labour ranks that has led to the formation of an independent grouping, which has been joined by some Conservatives, has led Jeremy Corbyn at last to change the position (laughs) that he had been taking. Uh, He's not quite finished. Today, the Labour front bench is tabling its preferred exit. Right. And it expects that to be defeated. The content of what Labour is proposing is that the UK remains in the customs union. It remains substantially in dynamic alignment with the single market. It remains in alignment on whole questions of rights. And therefore, it's the softest of possible soft exits. It expects that to be defeated. When that Mm. is defeated, it becomes Labour's official policy to support a referendum on whatever deal Mrs May manages to get over the line or remaining in the European Union. But if she can't get a deal over the line, then where do we stand at this point? Then Parliament will vote against um, a uh, no-exit without a deal proposition, appeal to the European Union for an extension, and then the question that the EU will correctly pose is, what do you want an extension for, boys and girls? And the only credible they can answer that they can supply is either because we need a general election or because we need a second uh, referendum. Now joined by Michelle Egan of American University. Uh, Michelle, great to talk to you again. Thank you. So give us your sense. Uh, Brendan has kind of laid out some some ideas here. Give us your sense of what we're looking at just a little over a month from uh, from the, the Brexit date. Well, I think there are different moving parts going on here. I think the one thing that is uh, most people's attention on is the dynamics within the parliament, the various um, upcoming votes that will happen in mid-March, and obviously the dynamics within the political parties themselves. And they're currently in parliament discussing amendments which lay out all the various different options and the jostling that's going on. But there's also two other dimensions, and one, I think, is the impact on business and the un- not only the uncertainty for business, but some of them have been preparing for the end date in March. Some of them are now saying, well, if we extend the deadline, we're going to have to make accommodations again, and that's 
causing us a lot of problems in terms of negotiating trade agreements, but also in terms of foreign direct investment and a whole host of impact on the economy. And the third issue, I would say, is what I would call the anticipatory adjustment that's happening in both Brussels and the member states. They're adjusting. They're, um, you know, moving forward in what do we need to do to mitigate the effects on our economy. Right. So there are a lot of attention on Britain, but we should not forget the, um, you know, the EU and the member states themselves. Bren? The Irish government is processing a bill called the uh, United Kingdom Withdrawal from the European Union Consequential Provisions Act. Man, and that's a mouthful, huh? It is uh, <laughs> an omnibus piece of legislation, right? Uh, only comparable to the emergency legislation that you ma- might pass in wartime, right? To prepare the Irish economy for the possibility of of a hard exit, uh, Ireland is not alone in this respect. The Benelux countries are, are taking uh, rather similar measures. So Michelle's uh, right in that in that respect. Uh, I think, however, that uh, we are going to see uh, an eventual denouement between May's deal and a referendum or conceivably a general election. But I think it will be the, the, the former two. And then that would probably be, be the last step for Mrs. May as, as prime minister, she, right? She's already committed not to going into a general election. Correct. So she could resign and leave a poison chalice to her successor. <laughs> um, but if there were to be a referendum, if she were to accept that, and she went in championing her deal right. against Remain, uh, she would probably calculate that she would oblige those who support a hard exit to go along with her. So we might still see more of her. Michelle, your thoughts? They, it is so much up in the air with, you know, following this is like whiplash. But quite frankly, um, you're also seeing a little bit of um, movement, perhaps. I think the core Brexiteers are worried at this point that there's some dynamic in terms of energy behind an extension or, um, you know, a people's vote, as it's called, or second referendum. And you're starting to see them being very concerned. And so they're now making some sort of noises about, well, maybe if we can get a um, an amendment to the um, backstop. And, but that doesn't um, resolve the issue that, you know, for either political party, this is really a poison chalice. You know, because the the country, after all, was split by the yeah. vote. Yep, almost fifty fifty, if memory serves me. That's Fif- correct. I mean, yes, a small a small victory for uh, leave. Yeah. Um, what do, what does this what does this put the or I should say what is the state of the UK economy right now because of all of this back and forth we've obviously seen the the prices of currency fluctuate quite a bit Michelle over the last uh, over the last several months when when you look at, at at where this economy could potentially be in the next few months and where it is right now how do you how do you view the strength or weakness of it right now I think it depends on your market, you know, if you're a local market and you're a, you know, a small manufacturing company, the impact may be much less catastrophic than if you're, say, automo- uh, the automotive sector yeah. or the healthcare sector 
one that relies on, you know, these, you know, integrated supply chains, moving products and services back and forth across um, countries. So I do think that's the problem. I also think a lot of businesses are finding that, you know, bidding for contracts or, you know, setting things in place, um, people are hesitant. Uh, people are hesitant to sort of say to Britain or British uh, manufacturers, well, yes, we'll, we'll strike this deal with you, we'll buy from you, we'll purchase. So that's the first problem is the level of uncertainty for business. The second issue is, you know, getting in place a lot of what we call technical issues to allow for uh, trade across borders, you know, customs clearance, customs documents, um, you know, which products are going to be stopped, particularly in the agricultural and livestock sector and be, you know, tested or examined. All of that will create time. The third issue that it's really having an impact on is Britain for all of its, we will roll over all of these international trade treaties. <laughs> That's not happening on two levels because first, they haven't left the EU. People want to see what deal they get with the EU. And thirdly, this is a chance for those countries like Japan, like Korea, like Canada to say, oh, just a minute, we don't want the exact same terms that we have with the EU. Right. We would like to reopen those deals. Brandon? Michelle is is correct. Nominally, uh, the UK economy looks as if it has very low um, unemployment. It looks as if it's relatively stable, but growth is stagnant. And most importantly, I think we can see what we should call an investment strike. Um, And that investment strike is entirely rational because why invest when you don't know what your future horizon looks like? Right. So conceivably, if if we have a we've had a year of no no net investment, uh, if uh, the, the normal consequence of that is a is a recession sometime the, down the road, so the Bank of England is preparing for that. Most of the warnings uh, that have now been issued by the uh, UK civil servants have been published, and th- they look very bleak. If there were to be a hard exit. And I, I think a hard exit without a deal is incredibly improbable, despite yeah. what we're talking yeah. about, just yeah. because they're completely unprepared for it. Uh, let, me, let me just give you one simple example. The agriculture minister, Michael Gove, is proposing having significant tariffs on food <laughs> to protect <laughs> British farmers, right? The chancellor, the treasurer, um, by contrast sensibly wants in the scenario that they leave to have no tariffs on food so that yeah. um, most consumers don't experience an immediate negative effect. Right, right. That isn't sorted out. Um, so they can't even agree the basics among themselves in the cabinet about what to do in an emergency that is facing them in a month's time. So what do you predict in those circumstances? Kick the can down the road if they possibly can. But, uh, and I know that the, the time is running out, yeah. and that's why I think these decisions will be forced. They can be forced in several ways. One is by the EU saying, actually, no, you're not getting any more time. Right, right. Uh, and then I think... Um, uh, a referendum would be required if Mrs. May had not got uh, her deal through Parliament. Um, if, by contrast, they give time, they'll give time on condition that it's about a referendum or a general election. 
Now, one thing that is happening in the background that we we should talk about, the Democratic Unionist Party, the uber-British party, the the party that is so British that it thinks if the rest of the British are committing uh, economic suicide, they should join them in in doing so. Um, That party is now having cold feet. It realizes that its insistence on being treated exactly the same as Great Britain is not only potentially very negative for Northern Ireland, which stands to gain from the backstop, but they themselves will be blamed for all of the negative repercussions sure. that may flow from a hard exit. So they think that would be catastrophic for them in the long run. It's dawning on them. So they know that if they were to back Mrs May's deal, that releases a lot of the hardline uh, exiteers. Um, to come back into Mrs. May's fold. So watch that space. It's important. Now, that's why they're going to look for some form of words that looks as if the withdrawal agreement has been modified. My own judgment is that it's extraordinarily unlikely that there are meaningful words that can be, can be found. Right. Will Ireland accept such words um, on the supposition that the DUP will swallow them and say, we've achieved a great negotiating victory, we'll now back Mrs May? Or will they actually stop it and say, no, um, this is um, a serious modification of the withdrawal agreement, we don't accept it? Um, That remains to be seen, but that, that space has to be watched. 844-942-7866 is the number if you would like to join in with your comments or questions. Joined in studio by Brendan O'Leary from here at the University of Pennsylvania, Michelle Egan uh, at uh, at American University and also a global fellow at the Wilson Center. Again, 844-942-7866. Or if you'd like, send us a comment on Twitter at BizRadio132 or my Twitter account, which is at DanLoney21. I I guess, Michelle, with some of the comments, and we mentioned it uh, before you came on, uh, by Emmanuel Macron and Angela Angela Merkel about uh, the extension of time, uh, that that does really start to put the pressure on from the European Union side of saying, unless there is something significant, you're not getting any more time. That's absolutely right. I mean, it's the phrase, the kicking the can down the road. And, you know, you have businesses who need to make decisions. I mean, already those businesses in the UK that have decided to, you know, increase their supplies or change, you know, or some of them shut down for a period of time. Yeah. so this can be all sort of, you know, negotiated, worked out and dealing with what the implications are. You know, they were doing this for March and now they might have to do it further down the road. And so there becomes a point where how much uh, modification, and I think Brendan's right about the acceptance of this text and whether there is any fine maneuvering of the withdrawal agreement, particularly for the backstop, and there becomes a point that they're also facing the issue of the May elections to the European Parliament. And, you know, if Britain is going to be given an extension, they will have to participate in the European elections. And so this raises a whole host of issues. And, and any extension that would be given, if it, if it is granted, would probably end prior to those, those May elections, I would think, correct? Yes, but uh, if you were going to be the EU and strategic, um, they're going through sort of a budget process now. 
And if they wanted to really put the screws uh, on the UK, they could turn around and say, well, we'll give you this really long extension, and that will require you to contribute to the, uh, the next too. budget cycle. Yeah. So there could be a financial penalty imposed on the British as well. Well, I, I think the, the the current draft withdrawal agreement includes all sorts of UK contributions, so that wouldn't be a major move on the on the part of the EU. Uh, I I think that uh, obliging the UK to accept a short timetable would mean obliging them to choose through a referendum or a general election, um, and I would expect that to be the, the posture of the, of the leading parties inside the EU. If we uh, go back a bit, I, I don't think there's any serious prospect at all of any textual change to the withdrawal agreement. That would require a major volt fast on the part of the EU leaders and it would breach their agreement with Ireland. Yeah. What we're talking about is apparently some codicil yeah. that will be drafted by the UK Attorney General and apparently agreed by the EU that would be attached to the political declaration that in the UK view would somehow modify the withdrawal agreement, but in the EU view, and importantly from Ireland's point of view, would have no material consequences. Now, what that wording can be uh, is is not something I'm familiar with. Um, I have seen proposals that some people have made which suggest that the political declaration could be modified so that the legal interpretation of the withdrawal agreement took the political declaration into account. Right. Now, if that were to be the case, that I think would be re- recognised as a modification of the withdrawal agreement right. and therefore would not be acceptable to Ireland. And indeed, it should not be acceptable to a lot of, e- of the uh, remaining members of the European Union. So all that is a, is a cloudy mystery for now. <laughs> um, so let, let me terminate that because we're, we're going to end in uh, a highly speculative, speculative legal space. Right. Yeah. But, but Michelle, as where we are right now, and as you both have mentioned, so much of this is speculative, even just 30 days or 32 days prior to, to the March 29th date. There's a lot of both speculation and, you know, I mean, Brendan is right. Once you start opening up this agreement, um, you know, given the fact that we do have a European Court of Justice, um, there will be, you know, there is really no uh, legal room for maneuver. And then you have this looming deadline. You have implications for investment, for companies. You know, you also have the issue of citizens' rights, Um, You know, a whole host of issues that need to be resolved. The one thing the EU has done is published um, some contingency plans. And so they want to make sure that, for example, uh, euro transactions, transactions that are done from the city of London, will not destabilize financial markets. And they will continue to allow that for a short period. They'll continue to allow some form of airline cooperation to avoid, you know, problems with flights. And so even the EU is doing contingency planning. But, you know, this is all um, well and good. And I'm not sure if, if Brendan mentioned it, too. But, you know, we're looking at sort of, you know, inter-party politics within the Conservative Party, inter-party politics within the Labour Party. Yeah. And then, um, you know, obviously the breakaway group, very small group of MPs that are really in some ways – um, raising the ante as well. 
Brent? So la- Labour's position has changed. Uh, we mentioned this earlier in the programme. The key thing is that after today, Labour will be pursuing a second referendum right. as its frank policy, and that's how it will be strategically oriented, so orienting itself towards amendments. The question becomes what level of support they will get elsewhere in the House of Commons right. for that. Right. They'll get the support of the independent grouping, the Liberal Democrats and the SNP. The question is, will there be sufficient numbers of Conservatives to go along with that preference? And will they outweigh the uh, number of Labour MPs from strongly leave voting constituencies Mm -hmm. who are likely to back May's deal? Now, what Mrs May has done, which is by comparison with American politics is relatively rare, is to promise to send lots of pork to Labour constituencies that voted leave to see if she can buy off 25 or so Labour MPs. Now, that is very rare in British politics. It's an overt bung or bribe on top of the the bung and bribe already paid to the Democratic Unionist Party. So clearly, she's in some desperation in trying to build that coalition. Uh, We won't know how that plays out, I think, until the second week of March. Great having you both with us today. Thank you, Brendan. Good seeing you. Thank you, Dan. Thank you. Michelle, thank you for your time. Thank you. Thank you. Brendan O'Leary from here at the University of Pennsylvania. Michelle Egan at American University. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.